You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. It's good to see you. I was just walking out behind the sheer screen there. The church I used to serve, we had, I used to have this big, um, this big tomb on, on the stage that had, a, that had a, the, the stone rolled away and like steam coming out of it. And I used to always make jokes that every year I was gonna actually come out of the tomb. <laughs> but I decided that probably wasn't the most appropriate thing, right? One day, I will. Um, it's great to see you. If you are new here, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jeff Bucknam. I have the privilege of being the lead teaching pastor here, and we want to study God's Word together. The passage that was just written, is, or just read, um, was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, I want to study that particular text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to do some stuff on this screen over here, so if you can bring a Bible with you, you can follow along with me as I read through the passage and circle some things I want you to notice about it, but it's always good to bring your Bible along, keep notes and those sorts of things, and make sure that I'm not telling you fibs about what it says. Um, I want to show you a picture. Uh, this is a picture of Mount Baker, um, where I used to live in British Columbia, Canada, is right there. My house is right about there. Uh, this is the view that I would see every day. If you've been to British Columbia, you know it rains a lot. So when I say every day, I mean like four days of the year, you'd see <clears throat> this view. Everywhere around town, you'd see Mount Baker. It's about 11,000 feet high, and it ascends from the valley floor whoo, straight, straight up. Um, used to tell the Canadians there that um, the Mount Baker's in the United States. It's in Washington State, but the best views of it are from Canada. But I used to always tell the Canadians that, you know, the best views in your country are of the U.S. <laughs> but it's a magnificent mountain. Uh, you'd be driving around town. There were moments that you noticed it. Uh, and it would, it would just be ascending above these hills, and different angles of it gave you a different appreciation for it. But, you know, I lived there for uh, 15 years, and, you know, it becomes familiar. You can drive around all the time. It can be a gloriously sunny day, and you see this mountain, and you don't really pay it much notice. The majesty is kind of always there. But then someone would come to visit. Or somebody from, who moved into the town, you know, you'd go for a walk with them or you'd show them around, and one of the things that you would imme they'd immediately say to you is, oh my word, we need to stop right here. There are roads in the middle of my, my town of Abbotsford, British Columbia, where uh, the road drives directly at the mountain and it ascends above the hills with, and, and the, the high evergreen trees frame this, this mountain. Or like this picture, you have a river that you're looking down and there's this massive mountain. And I've, I've actually been in the car before with people who say, can we just stop for a, can we stop for a minute? You know, because they're trying to get the picture out the front. And they're going, you can pull over. Why? What is wrong? I just, we got to stop. Look at that mountain. And as somebody who's lived there all these years, I was like, yeah, it's a mountain. Yeah, but what a mountain. 
Chicago's an amazing city. You go downtown, you see the skyline, you, you see the lake. It's fantastic. You've lived here for a long, long time, many of you. Visitors come in, they go into Chicago, and they stand at the foot of the Hancock Tower or the Sears slash Willis Tower, whatever, and they, they look up at it and they're like, holy smokes, look at that thing. And you're like, what? Look, it's huge, this building. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's big. Familiarity, yeah, they say familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know if that's necessarily the case so much as familiarity breeds indifference. Get used to it, these majestic, amazing things. It's one of the hard parts about being a Christian, quite honestly, for lots and lots of years, is that uh, if you've been in the church a long time and your church has been faithful, you've heard the gospel message repeatedly, the, you know, the news that Jesus died for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again. You've heard it so many times. Preachers try to use different illustrations to try to get you to connect with it. After a while, you know, it just sort of washes over you. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, that's true, uh-huh. The preacher starts dancing around and throwing their arms around and saying, but look at how magnificent it is. And we're like, mm, yeah, when do the bears start? It's not that we don't think it's majestic if you're a Christian. It is majestic. It's just always there. What we need, honestly, what we need is somebody to come along, get their camera phone out and start taking the pictures and saying, pull over, pull over, we want to get out of the car so we can stop and have a look. And when we stand there together and we gaze at this majestic peak of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we all of a sudden start remembering of how great it is. So look, on this Easter morning, what I want to do is I want to pull a car over with you. And I want to have a look at the gospel. And I want you to see how fantastic it is. This is really what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's going to try to challenge this uh, congregation of people, the Corinthians, who at this point actually believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ had already happened, some of them. And this is a major problem for them. And he gets into this whole argument in 1 Corinthians 15 and the rest of the chapter, which we're going to get into in the coming weeks, right? But here he says, look, before we get into any discussion about all of that, can we just review the gospel? Let's just start with the gospel. And in this passage, I want to show you four facts about the good news of Jesus Christ. Four facts that maybe you already know. But I just, I just want to have a look at them. I want to point out the different angles of that mountain for a second. Have a look at this particular ravine that stretches up the side of it. So here's the first of them. Um, the gospel is something to be reminded of. Yes, it's a message that many, many people believe in who are in the Christian church. Lots of people who come here on an Easter Sunday. Yep, absolutely believe it. They might be really committed to it or not. But it is something that we're actually supposed to be re repeatedly reminded of. You get that from the very beginning of this passage that we read just a few minutes ago. Paul writes, now, now I would remind you, there's the word, 
brothers, of the gospel that I preach to you, which you receive and in which you stand. I, I want you to think about the gospel. So let's think about the gospel. Um, I think there are five basically true beliefs that Americans have, no matter what American you are. Uh, I think there are some outliers, right? Some people who say, I don't believe that at all. But I think there are five commonly held true beliefs that Americans have, okay? So here's, here's the five. Number one, I think that um, most Americans believe that there is a moral standard in the world. Now, we argue about what that moral standard is, yes? In fact, most of our politics is around what the moral standard is. Some people will say, well, morally, you should do this with your sexuality. And other people say, morally, you should do that with your sexuality. But the question of morality, whether or not there is a moral standard, that's settled for everyone. Everyone believes in a moral standard. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Everyone holds that viewpoint. Everyone sits inside their house at some point and reads Twitter or watches the news and looks to their friend and spouse, whatever, and says, that should not be. Here's the way it should be. Everybody has a moral standard. Second, I think we all believe that those who keep the moral standards are good and those who don't are bad. In fact, that's what makes you good or bad, is whether or not you meet up to whatever moral standard it is. He's a really good guy. And by that, you, you, you mean, oh, that person is kind and nice, and they meet up to the things that we hold highly in our society. He's a jerk. What do you mean? Well, he's rude, and he's arrogant, and he... Those are all bad things. They're against the moral standards. So there's a moral standard. Those who keep the moral standards are good, and those who don't are bad. Third... Good people get God's favor and blessing. And bad people deserve judgment. Good people deserve our affirmation. And uh, they deserve to be in the newspaper. They deserve to uh, go on the, the, you know, have the highlight reel done of them. They might play a particular sport and everything's fantastic in how they play, but we really love it when they're a really kind person as well, right? Look at this person. He's nice to people who have disabilities. Those kinds of people, those good people deserve affirmation and blessing, but those who don't do those things, we want them to lose. We think that they are going to see God one day and they're going to get it, right? Especially the people we are really against us, who we really think are bad. You know, the Trump or the, the Biden or the, you pick. I don't care. Whoever your person is, well, Hitler's going to get it. Yeah, okay. So is George Bush. I've heard it all. There's a moral standard. Those who keep the moral standards are good. Those who don't are bad. Good people gets God's favor and blessing, and bad people deserve judgment. You can see that, quite honestly, these days with the whole cancel culture thing. Most of the people get really frustrated with cancel culture, but what's behind it is really interesting. It's this understanding that, look, we instinctively know that the people who do things that are outside the bounds of our morality should be somehow cast outside the 
the city, outside the walls. We should show them that they're not, they're not doing things right. Right. Fourth, though, and this is the one that I think some people don't openly admit, but I think deep down inside we all agree. Fourth, uh, we all fail those moral standards. All, all of us do. L- look, you might say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. Okay, but okay, let's be honest though. Okay, so you got your little phone, everybody got your phone on. Well, let's put the recorder on. I actually want to make an app. And here's the app. I want it to actually record every time you use the word should. Right? So you're driving down the road. That guy shouldn't be such a jerk driving. Records it. This person should act that way. That person should give more. This person shouldn't post that on Instagram. Just all the shoulds. And this app tracks you, right? Like all the apps track you. And when you do something that is against one of the shoulds that it's recorded, it should beep and, beep and shake. Right? So it's recording your whole moral framework, what you think is good, bad. And when you do something bad that is against the moral framework that you yourself have established, it would go beep. Dude, we'd be beeping and all day. You know that, right? Everything you did, you wouldn't get through a single trip in your car without that thing beeping and that person shouldn't speed. Then you go fast. Beep. <laughs> we all, listen, we all fail our moral standards, which means quietly, we're all hypocrites. All, all of us. And fifth, I, listen, I think that because we say that good people deserve the blessing and bad people deserve the judgment and we have shown ourselves to be bad by our own standards, we would then end up saying that we deserve judgment, right? In fact, it's just for us to deserve judgment. No, no, wait a minute. Basically, here's the way it works. Uh, I believe that people are both good and bad, and if you do more good than bad, then you will be considered a good person. Okay, let's try this out in a court of law. You go in there, and right, you're on trial for, I don't care, murder, rape, sexual immorality, whatever it is, the thing that you have destroyed people's, whatever, you've done it, and you, your lawyer stands up and says, judge, here's the thing. My, my client is very, very guilty, right? Clearly guilty of the thing that they're doing. They've ruined lives. They've destroyed people, right? They, they've held slaves. They've done all of these things, but you, you need to know that most of the time they're really nice people. Like seriously, like 70% of the time they don't beat their slave, right? It's 70% of the time they're not racist, 70% of the time, they aren't beating their wife. 70% of the time, they're not degrading other people with their language. 70% of the time, it's pretty good. Like I said, see, it's passing. We think the judge is going to say, what do you think the people who have been injured are going to say? Oh, yeah, totally. That's great. Yeah, totally. Ruined my life, but he's got a 70% good rating. 
Is that just? If the judge said, no, 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 don't worry about it. You got 70%. It's not a big deal. You're more good than bad. So we're going to wipe this whole thing away. Is that just? No. No. So here's the problem. Here's the problem with all of us. How can those who deserve judgment as moral failure, not at every point moral failure, but at, you know, 20%, 30%, whatever, how can those who deserve judgment as moral failures receive blessing from God as moral successes? How do you go from condemnation to commendation? Well, like, how are you going to do that? Well, you can perform better. See how that goes, though. A lot, a lot of us are trying real hard to perform. And again, you can move from 70% to maybe 80 or 85%. That's still, that's great. But you know, you're only 15% a, a racist. Good. Still deserve judgment, though, right? How do moral failures who deserve judgment receive blessing from God as moral successes? And listen, this is the majesty of the good news. That's the bad news. Here's the majesty of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus says, listen, here's the deal. I will take on your wickedness and the deserved punishment for it, and I will grant you my righteousness in a great exchange. I will take on the judgment that is due you, right? The, the righteous judge who says you're wicked in these ways and therefore deserves this kind of condemnation. This is from Isaiah 53. He is referring to Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Who was pierced? He was. For whose transgression? Ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Look, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was canceled. In other words, the cancellation that you and I deserve, the casting out of the society, the, the judgment he receives, we receive what? His righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, again, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become the righteousness. Listen very closely to me. That is not saying in this great exchange that Jesus then restores you. Okay, so he takes on your punishment and all these things. And then he restores you back to like an even keel and gives you a second chance. That's not what the gospel says. 
The the gospel is not saying, hey, it's going to treat you just as if you had never sinned. No, no, no. The gospel says that you get righteousness. You're not just on an even playing field. You're as righteous as Jesus. And remember what we said. Good people deserve blessing and bad people deserve judgment. You were supposed to get judgment. Jesus gets the judgment. You now are good in Christ. So what do you get? What do you get? Blessing. This is so crazy. Listen to me. This is so crazy that if you stood before God... And you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You did nothing to get this. And Jesus says, you just have faith in me, and I'll take your judgment, and you can have my righteousness. You can stand before God as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and say to God, the Almighty, you owe me. I'm in Christ. Therefore, all the blessings, all the merit, all the good that Jesus has done is attributed to me. Not because I did it, because I'm hidden in him, right? Here he is. I'm back here. And God, the just God, would only be just if he agreed with you. If he said, no, 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 that's okay. he's breaking his own rules. How is, listen, how is it that someone like me or like you who's been recorded as being should, 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 and a hypocrite at every turn can stand before the almighty God and say, you owe me because of Christ. It's a scandal. It's craziness. But it's good news. Uh, I had a good friend that when I was in college, we were, um, we made a video. Well, he made a video, right? You know, in your college, this was back in the 90s. And so, you remember the videotapes? Some of you, some of you in the room were like, what? The videotapes that you could rewind. Anyway, we, we, did, a, we did a movie. Uh, the movie was, was Academy Award level stuff. Here's the plot. It was basically... Uh, It was a basketball movie, and there were a group of bullies who bullied this one guy, but the one guy rose up, and he got them back by dunking on their head. So the bullies dunked on his head, and then later on, he dunks on their head, right? Thank you for the award. (laughs) Anyway, it took a long time to make. Did a lot of editing. My roommate did a ton of editing on this thing. Anyway, um, there was one section, he said, Jeff, I want you to play the bully, which was like, yeah, I can do that. So I want you to play the bully, and I was like, yeah, okay, well, I'll do the bully. And there's this one section, he said, the key scene in the movie, right? We get out there on the court, and we're, we're on these little dunk hoops because none of us can dunk, and so they're like eight feet. And so I had this one scene where I was supposed to go and just knock out of the way the guy who is, the, who is being bullied, my friend Jason, was playing his role. And I would hit him and then rise up and just dunk right on his head and then there was a scene where I was supposed to be hanging on the rim and the shot was going to be up like this at me and I'd go come down drop onto the ground and rip my shirt off (laughs) right like so I said to my friend Colin at the time Colin you've seen me with my shirt off 
I think this is probably not going to have the effect you think. Because you're looking for somebody who's got like a six-pack, and I, got, I, mean, I have a one-pack. He said, I, I know. But here's the thing. We, I, I got an idea for this. Uh, there's a guy on our, our floor in college. His name was Mark, and Mark loved, loved him some gym time, right? He had black hair, big guy. We were kind of the same, same size. It's just that my bigness was due to, you know, pancakes, and his bigness was due to, to you know, to, to the gym. And so... Uh, he said, we're going to dress you in the same stuff. And so what we're going to get you, Jeff, is you'll go and you'll hang on the rim there, right? And we'll get a shot of you like that. But then when this scene goes, drops down, I'll cut for away from the head. Mark will rip his shirt off, right? And that'll be that. Okay, so Mark's huge, bulging muscles. And so we do this scene. Fast forward several weeks, and I'm sitting there at the premiere, right? It's in a dorm room, right? The premiere of On the Court. And I'm sitting there on this, on this bed, next to two young women who I thought were delightful. And they were sitting there with me and a couple others, but the girls were right next to me. And so uh, we're watching this scene, and the scene comes along. And I go up, knock Jason out of the way, boom, right? Hanging on the rim, and then they cut away, and down comes someone dressed just like, that, just like me, looked like me, but n they didn't show the head. And Mark rips his shirt off and muscles everywhere, you know, some nine-pack, and he's like, and these ladies looked at me. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> so here's the crazy thing about this. I am being treated as if I had merit that I did not have. I am receiving the blessing of adoration and attention for something that was not mine because of a substitute, because of a stand-in. Don't you see? Don't you see? Don't, don't you see? Eternal life, joy forever, resurrection is yours, not because you earned it, because the stand-in earned it. That's a nice mountain. That's a, that's a majestic uh, peak. You, you, listen, you need to remember this. Christian, you need to remember this. You need to be reminded of it over and over and over again. There's a little story about uh, one of, a pastor who's had was lived in an apartment building, and in the basement of the apartment building was this Coke machine, and in the Coke machine would, like, sometimes they put the pennies in or the, the coins in, right? And it was, you'd been, had a Coke machine before, you put the coins in and nothing happens. So what do you do to the Coke, Coke machine? Well, you hit it, right? Hard on the side of it, as much as you can, right? You've Jason born that thing, you know you're given it. And finally, the coins in this machine would drop if you hit it enough, and then you could get the Coke. Anyway, this pastor's wife, she came up after getting a Coke one time, and she said, you know what you're doing every week as a pastor? You, you put the coins of that gospel in there, and then they get stuck. And everyone looks at you like, Meh, and you just take your hand, you start hitting them on the side of the head, and then the next week you hit them some more on the side of the head. Don't you see? Don't you see? Don't you see? And you're praying and hoping that the pennies will drop. Oh, that the penny would drop. 
I'm on this word. I would remind you, we got one, two, three, four in. This is good. We're going really well, okay? Second, the, the gospel must be held fast in order to achieve its, its goal. We, we need to be reminded of its magnificence, but it, it's something that we need to hold fast. Look at, look at the language, okay? This is the beginning of the passage again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Notice what happens here. The gospel is something that you receive, right? It's not something that, you know, if, if, if you're going to get a gift, it's not yours until you receive it. Right? So if you were going to give me a BMW, which I'm hoping might happen a little bit later, you're going you're to say, here are the keys, and I'm going to say, great, but it's not mine until I hold, hold on to the key. It's mine now. I've taken possession of it. The gospel is something. It's a message, yes, but it's a message to be received, to be owned, to be stood in, right? In which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. What is the word? It's the gospel message. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. See, because you can believe, believe in vain. What does that look like? Well, it means starting out and then stopping. It means taking the keys and saying, I like this car. And then someone else coming along, give me those keys. And you're like, okay. And you say, yeah, okay, because it doesn't really matter to you anymore. It's not the thing that you care most about, and so you don't hold it fast. But the gospel, in order for it to have its effect, must be held fast. This is a repeated thing throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 3, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, listen, we are his house if indeed we what? Hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we what? Hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. It, it's not about how you start, listen, I know in the Christian circles, and we should celebrate baptism all the time, and now celebrate when somebody says, I prayed to receive Christ. That is awesome. Awesome. We should celebrate it in the same way we celebrate the beginning of a race. But you don't get the reward unless you finish the race. So yay, you began. But continue. Continue. So what does it look, what, what do we mean specifically when we say, well, what does it look like to not hold fast? It's interesting, the next little verse in Hebrews 3 says, as it is said today, notice these quotes, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. What is that? So the people of Israel had come to the edge of the promised land. God saved them out of Egypt, miraculously, graciously took them out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Pharaoh was buried into it. They come across the wilderness. God provides for them through manna, right, bread in the wilderness and water in the wilderness. And so they get to the edge of the promised land and they say, okay, God's given this to us. They send in 12 spies. The guys come back. What's your report? And 10 of them are like, it's impossible. They're huge, these people. Like, what are we going to do? 
Two of them are saying, God, come on, let's go take them. But the 10 win the day and they tell all the people, no, no, we can't do this. What is that? That was the rebellion. That was the moment that what they did was they hardened their hearts. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, don't you see, don't you see? To not hold fast to the gospel is when a whole bunch of people who were saved, who have an experience of salvation, right, coming across the Red Sea, and even celebrate the things that churches celebrate by the Lord's Supper, right, the, the bread and, 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 and the cup, which is the, the drink of Christ. They had all of these experiences. They come to the edge of the promised land, and they didn't finish what was begun. Christians can begin and not finish what was begun and prove by their not continuing that it's all for naught, that their belief was in vain. Salvation belongs to those who receive the gospel and continue in it. And what's interesting about this little passage here is that Here's what they do. They get to the edge of the promised land. They hear the word of the Lord. Go forward, right? I'm going to promise you I'm going to take it. So they hear the actual word of God, just like you and I get the word of God in the scriptures. And they say, eh, I don't think so. And then they persist in the I don't think so. They're willful in the I don't think so. And they're unrepentant in the I don't think so. They hold their hand against God and they do what we call a high-handed sin and say, I don't like your commands and I'm not doing them. Are you a Christian? Seriously, is this, is this holding fast to the word that was preached? No. This is hardening your heart. I have a, another friend, we used, last church I served, we used to ride our bikes <laughs> to a place 30 miles away for a pastor's conference. There were a whole bunch of our pastors, and some of them would drive, but like five or six of us would always ride our bikes there. 30 miles, it's not hard. Um, there was one guy, he was our youth pastor at the time, and he came along, and you know, youth pastors are just there. He was new to this whole thing, he'd never really ridden a bike, and so he showed up for our bike ride, 30-mile bike ride, and he had this, like, old huffy bike that I think he'd picked up a garage sale somewhere. He had a banana seat on it, and he was sitting back, and he had somehow decked it out like a youth pastor would with, like, stereo equipment, like, hanging off of it, speakers and a receiver, and he said, check it out, and he turned it up, and we're listening to Newsboys or whatever the heck it, it was while we're driving, riding down the street. And all of us were saying, Sean, I don't think, I don't think you understand. You're, this is all going to go wrong. You're setting yourself up for failure because this bike's not going to make it. You're going to hate this music in a couple miles, right? He's like, no, no, this is going to be great. It's not a piece of cake, right? So he starts riding, and then he starts sweating, taking off his clothes because, you know, he had worn jeans because 30-mile bike ride. So he takes, he's like, oh, it's hot out here. He starts shoving stuff in his backpack. A few miles later, he's like, I hate this music, and he shuts it down and I had made a deal with everybody that was always the same every year. If we ride and we get to the destination, then I will buy you all sandwiches at this amazing place in the back of a, a gas station. I know, but it's cool. So that's, there's a reward in it. So anyway, he starts, he starts going and stuff. But seriously, halfway through, he was on the side of the road lying face down. His speakers had been thrown to the wayside like a mile before. I will come back and get these. 
right? Stereo equipment's everywhere. And he's like, I can't do anymore. I'm like, come on, man. You got to get up. No, it's too hard. It's hot. I said, so just come back for me. Come back for me. You save yourselves, <laughs> right? Anyway, we got there. Somebody comes back. They pick him up and they come and take him to the place where we're eating sandwiches. He sits down across from me and he's like, I'm so hungry. And I am like, so? And he said, what do you mean so? <laughs> the deal was that you finish the ride and you get the sandwich. The deal was not you begin the ride and you get the sandwich when you quit. Listen very closely to me. Those who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who begin by faith but stop holding fast to the word of Christ are not Christian people. Gospel is something to be reminded of. The gospel must be held fast to achieve its goal. The gospel, third, is a fact. So check this out. 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 15.3, I think. Uh, For I delivered to you as of first importance. <laughs> you ever go to lunch with somebody and uh, they, the guys, I'm talking to you specifically here, you go to lunch with a friend, right, who your wife is friends with their wife. And so you go to lunch with your friend who's the guy and you're sitting across, you have a conversation, you come home and your wife says to you, what did you talk about? Now you have a decision to make right now. Here's your decision. You talked about a whole lot of stuff. You know you did. You talked about sports. You talked about whatever. There were some things that were mentioned like, hey, we're pregnant. That was in the middle of it. Okay? In our male mind, we're like, yeah, that was like one of the things. Also, he's got Bears season tickets. Right? What she wants you to do is to sift through all of that and figure out what is of first importance to communicate. What is the thing that is the most important to communicate with her? And you say, I don't know. And then a few days later, she says, she's pregnant. You didn't, you know that? Oh yeah, he did mention that. I can't believe you. She freaks out because you're supposed to share the key thing, the most important thing. This is Paul's basically saying, there's a lot of things that you can say about Jesus. There's a lot of things you can say about Christianity, but I delivered to you guys as of first importance. Like this is the number one, you know, asterisk, bold, italicized thing. It was what I also received. What is of first importance, Paul? That Christ died for our sins. The, the message, the gospel message that you are righteous in Jesus and he took on your sin for you. He did that in accordance with the scripture. Then, then he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And note this, he appeared to Cephas, uh, which means Peter, and he appeared to, to the 12. And then he appeared to more than how many? 500 brothers at one time. Here's Paul saying, okay, so here's the most important message that I delivered to you. It's this gospel message. And I know it sounds crazy that there's a guy who actually rose from the dead. He predicted he would raise from the dead. He said he was God and had authority over death. And then he did have authority over death, proving everything he said was true. I know that sounds crazy. 
But here's what you got to understand. I'm not telling you this like someone would tell you about an alien abduction. Dude, I was out in the field the other day and I was standing there and all of a sudden aliens came down and they sucked me up and they probed me in with their pokers. And you're standing there going, really? Was there anybody else around? No, everyone ran away. It was just me up there. In the... And you're like, yeah, it didn't happen. Why, how, why didn't it happen? Well, because he's just a story and nobody can corroborate it. But the apostle Paul's like, but see, see, see the people who can corroborate this? This, this event, this resurrection didn't happen in some like backwater. It's not like, you know, some guy went up into the mountains and God visited him and he came back with tablets and says, look, I have tablets from God. And you're like, I don't know, those look like you made them. I know they're from God. You have no corroborating witnesses, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is presented as fact. You say, oh, come on. How could I possibly verify that? Okay, most of them are still alive. Over there on 4 Christian Boulevard is Johnny. You can ask him. He saw him. And Susie over there on Golgotha Way. And here's their address and phone number. You need their Snapchat. Like he's giving everyone... Look, you can go ask anybody about this, which is so important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact that witnesses can verify, and you should follow Jesus then, not because it makes you feel good, even though it might, not because he gives you eternal life, even though you should. You should follow Jesus because not to is to live a lie. You should follow Jesus because it's true. And listen, that's a really important thing because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for something other than the fact that it's true because of a feeling, because he gives you good circumstances, that when those feelings fade and those circumstances change, your faith was rooted in these changing things and you will not hold fast. But if it's true, then it doesn't matter how you feel about it. He rose. And that changes everything. This has been a debate in the church for I don't know how many years. Uh, people have tried to come along and say, yeah, okay, fine. But the resurrection's not true. So there's a whole bunch of theories that people have come up with to try to explain these facts. These are the accepted facts, all right? Everyone agrees with these facts. Everyone in history, everybody around. You might get some nut job on the... Periphery, but they're shouted down by almost everybody in the history of history. These are the facts. Number one, Jesus lived and died. There's more evidence that Jesus lived and died than there is for Caesar. Jesus lived and he died. Uh, the tomb was empty. If the tomb wasn't empty and Jesus was there, then the Jewish leaders would have produced a body. Yes? And all of it would have just been taken care of. You guys are saying he's He's alive? Here he is, dead. We're going to string him up and show everybody. Couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. Third, Jesus' followers claimed to have seen him. I'm not saying they necessarily did or didn't, but they did make this claim. You just read it. And these followers who ran away at, at, at his arrest 
all of a sudden, because they claimed that, he, that they saw him, became these ridiculously bold people who died without ever recanting that truth. History shows us that some of the apostles were thrown off the tops of buildings. Recant. No. They throw them off. They land. They're lying on the ground still alive. So they come down with stones. You want to recant now? No. And they kill them. When you're lying on the ground, this might be an opportunity for you to admit the lie. Yes? They were hung upside down, crucified upside down. You want to recant? No. They were fed to wild beasts. You recant. What you saw isn't true. No, it's true. Kill me. So you have to come up with something that explains those four facts. So some people come up and say, all right, but here's the thing. So he wasn't really dead when he was on the cross. So these professional Roman soldiers whose only job was to figure out whether people were dead or alive and their own lives were tied to the fate of the person on the cross. So if they got it wrong, they themselves would be killed. They made a mistake. They put him in a tomb. He was wrapped up in this shroud. They sealed it with this massive stone, and they put a Roman seal on it and put guards out in the front. But Jesus woke up in the middle of that thing. He was beaten and bloodied. You know, he'd been whipped and hands nailed to the cross, but he had the much energy to unwrap himself, right, and then wrap it back up so that when it was found, it was completely intact, this shroud. And so then he gets to the door, and he goes, and the soldiers are like, what's that? But, you know, he does his abracadabra, right? And he rolls back this, this massive stone with his super Jesus power, and he comes out, and he, Chuck Norris is everybody, right? And then he goes off to France, because why wouldn't you? Really? That's, that's our explanation for this. Well, what about all the people who claim that they saw him, and then they died for it? This doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. All right, fine. It was a lie then. They came and they stole the body of these disciples who had just run away. They get all this courage. They come and they just beat up the guards, steal Jesus' body, roll the stone back themselves. They come back out and then they die for what they knew was a lie. See, I know lots of people who might die for a belief, right? But they always believe the belief is true. Do you know anybody who on the edge of death told a lie about it, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm totally going to die for this lie that I know is a lie. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think one of them would have recanted? But none of them recant. So that doesn't work. Okay, it's a legend. It's just a legend. It grew up over time, right? You know, fish was this big, Jesus was a really good dude, and then he's God, and he rose from the dead. You know what's crazy? This little passage that we're looking at, it, it, it was an early Christian hymn. This is the way they would remember their theology. They'd write songs about it. And this is an early Christian hymn. Jesus died in 33 AD. Yes, 33. The book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians was written around 51. It takes about 10 years for a creed to develop and be known by all the churches around. And so what? Maybe they started this belief in 34. You got 10 years. That's 44. To, this, is, this was written within seven years of when this creed was known about everyone. There were people who still were alive who had seen him. If it was a legend, don't you think somebody would have stood up and said, ah, that's not what I remember. But you don't have that. 
So look, I'm just asking you to be logical. I'm actually asking you to play good history here. Be consistent with your history. The best explanation for what happened at the resurrection was that he was raised. It's a fact. And it's a fact that changed the world. So here's the last one, right? Notice what it did to the Apostle Paul, this, this message. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm, the, listen, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul was like, he was a murderer who was running around gathering up Christians who believed and throwing them into prison and trying to kill them. So when he gets confronted by God, drawn into the kingdom, you know, he's all flat on his back on a road to Damascus, and he gets dragged into the kingdom of God. He's now sitting at like lunch with the people days earlier he was trying to kill. You think he might be a little sheepish? I would. Oh, I'm really sorry about that whole killing thing. He would always live with the knowledge that he was the one who was trying to destroy the church. He was the one who was a murderer. He was the one. He has this past. You got a past? Paul's got a past. He couldn't believe that he, he of all people, would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But by the grace of God, he said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is how it happened to me. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Don't you see what's happened here? The grace that he was shown, this massive grace resulted in hard work. Because the greater your grace, the greater your understanding of how much you've been given by Jesus, how much you were owed, right, nothing, and how much you were given everything, that gap, that gap right there is the thing that's going to drive your worship. And if you have a little tiny gap, if you say, eh, I'm not that, it's not that important. I was a really good person. Jesus sort of just helps me out a little bit. So you have a gap like this. Your worship is this big. But if like Paul, you've got this massive gap of what you deserved and what it is that Jesus gave you, then this is what drives your worship. What drives your worship? You know what I mean by worship. I don't mean just singing. I mean your response to God, your Christian life. You know, the solution to low-level, little commitment, meh, Christian living isn't more understanding of commands. It's not me yelling at you to do better. The solution is more understanding of grace. So let me just finish with this picture. Afterwards, you come up to me in the foyer and, and you say to me, um, here's the keys to your BMW. And the, thank you. And then you say, uh, I also need you to know that I have kidney failure. And I'm like, that's awful. Yeah, I don't have long to live. Now, imagine I take one of two options for response. The num number one, I say to you, wow, that is horrible news. I feel awful. I feel like I want to do something to help you. So um, somebody gave my daughter these peeps, which are these marshmallow hideous things that people eat around Easter, and I don't want them. Because yuck, I want to give them to you. 
And you're, you're like, oh, thanks. Don't mention it. You'll do me a favor one day, right? So. Or I say to you, wow, that's really hard. You got kidney failure. Um, what's your blood type? You tell me. I say, I think that's my blood type. We go to the doctor. The doctor checks me and says, hey, you'd be a good kidney donor. And I say, cool, take that baby out. Give it, give it to him. We go into surgery. You get the kidney. You're alive. We come out of surgery. We're sitting there in the beds next to each other, half drunk on our drugs. And, and I'm looking over to you and saying, how you doing? And you are saying what now? Thanks. Are you? Is it thanks for the peeps? Or are you effusive? Are, like, are you thinking to yourself, I don't have any idea how I could ever thank you and pay you back for such a magnanimous, remarkable gift? Don't you see that the greater the gift, the greater the response, if Jesus gave you not just a kidney but life eternal when you deserved life in hell, what do you respond with? How are you responding? Look, if you're here and you're new to church or you're new to faith or maybe you're coming back to the church from a long time, I need to tell you this right now. The response that you need to make right now is Jesus is commanding you by the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and believe the gospel, to say, listen, I need that. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. Everything you said is true. I have a failure of my own doing. I need somebody who can make things right. My life needs to be made right. Dude, there's no, there is no coincidence that you're here right now on this Easter Sunday and that this nut job is standing up here dancing around and telling you these things. God brought you here. He wants you to hear this word so that you would repent and believe and rejoice forevermore in his presence. That you yourself could be called, seriously, as you walk out today, you came in as being under the wrath of God. You could walk out as a child of the living God. So, what do you got to do? You know what? Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I need what you give. But most of the people in the room aren't in that situation. This is a story and a message you've probably heard lots and lots of times. This is the meh. It's the thing that you see all the time around town. Yes, yes, it's majestic. It's fantastic. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It's great. But man, if it's going to have the effect that it needs to have, if it's something that you will hold fast, it needs to be so grand. This gap needs to be so grand that you will do anything to have it. And the only way to get there is to remind yourself of it over and over and over again, to pull over to the side of the road and open the door, even when nobody else is with you, and stand there and say, I cannot believe that somebody like me has been brought into his kingdom and sat at his table. 
And that in 10,000 years, I will still be sitting at his table, lavished on with grace upon grace in a heavenly bliss that far extends beyond anything you could dream or imagine. And I got it because of him. Man, if that rolls in your head and the penny starts to drop, you cannot imagine what the Lord will do with that. Feel the gap and see how it makes you worship. Lord, I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for the opportunity to share the gospel with them. Remind us again and again of its majesty, we pray. And if there are those here who don't know you yet, Lord, honestly, I pray, Spirit, you'd come and you just grab their hearts right now, tug on them and say, no, I'm talking to you. And in response, Lord, I pray that they would beat their chest and say, yes, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. I want what you have to give. I will follow you the rest of my days on earth so that I might spend the rest of eternity with you and the joy of your Father. And we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.